Hello, everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party and the Socialist Party candidate for president in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and organize around the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on. So today is the 99th day since Hamas's criminal attack on civilians in Israel in the beginning of Israel's genocidal war on Gaza. And of course, war crimes by Hamas do not justify war crimes by Israel. Uh, Today, millions of people in over 120 cities around the world are marching for a ceasefire in Gaza. And as we speak, there's a major demonstration in Washington, D.C. It was called by the American Muslim Task Force on Palestine, a coalition of Muslim groups, and it has three demands. First, an immediate and permanent ceasefire in Gaza. Second, stop the unconditional U.S. funding of Israel's genocide against Gaza and the occupation of Palestine. And third, hold Israel accountable for war crimes committed against the Palestinian people and their continuous violations of international law. These are good demands that we should support. I know that Jill Stein and Cornell West are speaking at this demonstration. I I looked into the live stream for the first couple of hours, it was speakers from these Muslim groups. I don't know when uh, Stein and West will, will come on, but you can find it online and uh, you know check out what people are saying. There's other things going on. There was an emergency summit on Gaza this weekend uh, hosted by Rainbow Push in Chicago. Uh, they had an online session yesterday, which is online. We'll put the link to that in there. Uh, Speakers included Reverend Jesse Jackson, uh, James Zogby, who founded the uh, American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee and the Arab American uh, Institute, Peter Beinhart, who has been a commentator on the Israel-Palestine question. Cornel West was there. Uh, It's a six-hour long uh, summit, so you can scroll through and you know, listen to the speakers you want if you don't have six hours to spend, which I don't think many of us do. Uh, But that was indicative of how many people and how many organizations are concerned about uh, this war in Gaza. And I hope you are doing what you can to end the war on Gaza. If you're, you might be at that demonstration in Washington and listening to this uh, afterwards. if not, you know, there's plenty of things you can do. You know, letters, I keep saying this, letters to the editor, op-eds, we got to keep speaking up. And it does make a difference. Uh, and what I think we should be doing is pushing the U.S. to join the international community, enforcing Israel and the Palestinians into a peace process toward a political solution. And international pressure is key because right now the leadership on both sides are right-wing ethno-nationalists uh, who are preventing a peace process and a political solution. And we can't let these right-wing ethno-nationalists hold world peace hostage to their reactionary agendas. But the U.S. is the key player because it has given Israel so much military and diplomatic support as it perpetuates its policies of occupation and apartheid and now ethnic cleansing in Gaza and also in Jerusalem and the West Bank. And, of course, a lot of the money for the Palestinian Authority has come from the United States. So the U.S. has leverage and it's got to change its policy, fundamental change. So it truly supports national self-determination for both national groups that are living on the same land there. 
uh, between the river and the sea. Uh, and they need to, you know, we need to force them to get together toward a political solution so both national groups can live together in peace with equality. And whether it's a one state, a two state, a confederation solution, there have been lots of models. The point is to get them talking and, you know, not let them come out until they come out with a political solution. Uh, otherwise, this, this thing that's been going on, this conflict that's been going on for really a century uh, is not going to end. And this week, South Africa, well, they, they started it on December 29th, took an important step by bringing the charge of genocide against Israel to the International Court of Justice, which is the United Nations Court, it's also called the World Court. And they lodged a complaint uh, on December 29th, and two weeks later, this Thursday, uh, they began their hearings on the matter. So on Thursday, uh, South Africa made its presentation, and it's asking the court to issue a provisional order for Israel to stop its military campaign in the Gaza Strip, to stop any action that be, could be considered genocidal by Israel, uh, to allow external bodies, including journalists, access to the area, uh, to submit a report on the situation. You know, the World Court, you know, give more details from what was presented by South Africa yesterday in Israel. I'm sorry, Thursday in Israel, yesterday, Friday, and to enable Palestinians in Gaza to have access to humanitarian aid because people are dying now from dehydration, starvation, uh, and disease, and the aid is not getting in. And we'll put a link in the chat to uh, South Africa's 84-page, it's called an application, it's more like an indictment, a charging document, and it's devastating. I mean, you read through that and they pulled together all the crazy things that Israel Israel's leaders have said that are genocidal in intent, uh, as well as, you know, what's been going on in terms of the destruction in Gaza. Uh, and we'll also put a, a link in there uh, to a powerful 22-minute presentation by one of the South African lawyers on Israel's genocidal intent. Uh, and that's just devastating. If you only got 22 minutes, uh, check that out. You can you can see the whole three-hour presentation. The UN's put it on YouTube uh, from South Africa and then Israel's defense. Israel's defense, you know, uh, to justify its death and destruction toward the Palestinians in Gaza was, they called it self-defense. Uh, and Israel's lawyers said, look at its actions, not the genocidal pronouncements of its leaders what they do now, what they say, but that defense really rings hollow because Israel's actions have been genocidal. The massive bombardment, including people's homes, hospitals, mosques and churches and refugee camps, the blockade that has led to death from starvation, dehydration and disease, uh, and the obstruction of the humanitarian aid that's needed, the food, the water, the fuel, the medicines. So, you know, I don't know what kind of defense that is. The World Court, as I said, is the UN's court. It's got 15 judges that are elected by a majority of both the UN General Assembly and the UN Security Council. They have a staggered nine-year terms, so five are elected every three years. Uh, you, they can be reelected. There's an informal rule that kind of spreads uh, representation across geography, so five seats Go to Western countries, three seats to, three seats to African countries, 
and, and it's one each from the Francophone to Anglophone and Arab countries, two for Eastern Europe, three for Asia, and two for Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, and the way that works out is the P5, the permanent uh, Security Council members, the US, the UK, France, Russia, and China, all have, constantly have seats. Now, cases can take years, but preliminary injunctions can happen quickly. Ukraine appealed to the World Court on February 26, two days after uh, Russia's full-scale invasion began, uh, invoking the 1948 Genocide Convention, as South Africa is. And in two and a half weeks, on March 16th, uh, 2022, the World Court released an emergency ruling of provisional measures. And they ruled that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was illegal and ordered Russia to cease its military operations. Uh, the vote was 13 to 2, with Russia and China uh, voting against. Um, of course, the World Court's ruling was completely uh, rejected by Russia. The World Court itself rejected Russia's basis claims that its invasion was to prevent genocide of ethnic Russians in the eastern Donbass region. Uh, but the case continues, and it's going to take years because Ukraine is seeking full reparations from Russia for all the damage caused by its invasion. Um, but that's going to take years. The same is true for South Africa's genocide case against Israel. Um, we can expect a preliminary ruling in about two weeks. Uh, that's what people expect. And uh, we expect the court to demand that uh, Israel stop its genocidal assault on Gaza. Of course, it'll take years to adjudicate the case for reparations. That's uh, also in South Africa's brief. Um, but there's another case going on, and that's at the International Criminal Court. Now, this was set up in the 1990s precisely to deal with genocide, specifically the genocides in Rwanda and Bosnia. Uh, and this is a venue where individuals can bring violators of international law to justice compared to the world court, the UN's court, which is where you bring states uh, to justice. Um, so the International Criminal Court is an intergovernmental organization, not an organization organ of the United Nations. It has 124 member states. Um, and it also has uh, judges, in this case, elected by the, an assembly of the 124 member nations. So it has 18 judges with six selected every three years to staggered terms. Um, so the way cases are often brought is from the uh, International Criminal Court's chief prosecutor, who is Kareem Khan. And he's indicated that he's pursuing uh, charges against both Hamas for its October 7 massacres and Israel for its post-October 7 carnage in Gaza. And in the case of uh, Ukraine. Uh, last March, the International Criminal Court, Karim Khan, unsealed arrest warrants for Vladimir Putin and his so-called Children's Rights Commissioner, Maria Lova-Belova, on charges related to the systematic kidnapping of Ukrainian children to Russia. And these, these arrest warrants have had an impact. You know, Putin had to skip the BRICS summit in South Africa in August because South Africa is a member of the International Criminal Court, and as such, would have been obligated to arrest and extradite Putin to The Hague for trial before the International Criminal Court. Um, so Khan is like, likely to unseal indictments against 
Israel and Hamas before long. And indictments, particularly against the Israeli officials, is going to have an impact. It's going to isolate Israel and the world. Even though the U.S., Russia, and China are not members of the International Criminal Court, as I said, 124 countries are, including most of Europe. Uh, so indictments against senior Israeli officials will end the ability of Israeli officials under indictment to ever visit uh, any of those countries that are a member of the ICC, including most of Europe. So that will have a real uh, impact in isolating Israel diplomatically. Uh, the impact on Hamas will be less consequential because it's already isolated because many of these countries consider it a terrorist organization. There are already sanctions against them. But meanwhile, coming back to the U.S., uh, Biden is just getting played by the Israeli far right like he is by the Republican far right. He seeks accommodation and compromise with Netanyahu like he does with the Republicans uh, who all want Trump elected. These are not his friends. And now it looks like Biden may be doing the same thing with Putin, who also wants Trump elected. There are lots of reports about uh, back channels from the U.S. administration to Putin uh, to force Ukraine into a land for peace deal that sells out Ukraine. Uh, and now we're in the situation where uh, the $61 billion in aid to uh, Ukraine is stymied by the you know, Republicans in the House. And I don't see a way out of that. We're more likely to get a government shutdown because the hard right in the Republican Party, they don't even want uh, Biden to get any legislative legislation through. It's all about the election and not about, you know, what's good for America or anybody else in the world. <clears throat> but Biden pathetically keeps trying to compromise with his enemies, like the Republicans, like Putin, like Netanyahu, and they all want him out of office, and you know he's he's just getting played by them. It's it's really pathetic. Um, and Trump is worse than Biden, but Biden is his own worst enemy. It's just unbelievable. The other thing I want to talk about today is COVID. Um, the pandemic still rages, despite the pronouncements by Biden and the Republicans alike, who are pandering to big business interests who want people to keep working, shopping and going to school without any public protection measures, no matter how many people it kills. Last week, 2,000 people, over 2,000 people died from COVID. It's the highest total since last winter's surge. Um, and it's having long-term effects. We have a Census Bureau survey that found as many as 47 million Americans have debilitating long COVID. That's one in seven Americans. Um, another study has shown that the risk of long COVID for children is 16% after just one infection. That is more than one in six children who get COVID end up with long COVID. And we also have the situation where young people ages 25 to 44 have had a nearly 30% increase in heart attack deaths uh, during the first two years of the pandemic with the risk of heart problems increasing with each COVID infection a young person gets. Yet Biden and them are acting like the, the, the pandemic is over. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have stopped counting COVID cases, uh, but we know there's wastewater data is still being collected where they count the amount of COVID virus in sewage. And it's a pretty accurate tracker of the ebbs and flows of the virus. 
And we are currently in the middle of the second biggest surge of the COVID pandemic, higher than at 90% of the time since COVID appeared. Uh, more than three quarters of hospital beds are currently in use due to the COVID hospitalizations. Um, so, you know, we're in the middle of a crisis that's not even being talked about. And because of limited public health protections and limited distribution of COVID vaccines worldwide, and that's due to the patents that the drug companies, they don't want to, you know, let this uh, vaccine out at, at what it costs. They want to get super profits from the patents they hold. Uh, COVID is largely still raging free. And as a result, the, the virus keeps mutating. So now we're dealing with J, JN1, a highly transmutable, transmissible uh, variant. And we're in a situation where only 19% of Americans have taken the new COVID vaccine that came out in September. It fortifies the immune response to new variants and lowers the risk of severe cases and the odds of getting long COVID. Uh, so, but Biden's policy is just to declare the pandemic over and do nothing. Last April, Biden, despite some grumbling, signed the Republican bill to declare the COVID emergency over and ended the federal regulations and benefits that were installed to cope with the pandemic. And then in September, in an interview, Biden declared the pandemic over again. Quote, if you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. That's not following the science like Biden promised in contrast to Trump. Uh, again, it's surrendering to the pressure of capitalists who are the paymasters of the Democratic and Republican politicians alike who want business as usual, no matter how many people it kills. Um, last week, just to underscore this point, the White House Press Secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre, was asked about masking as COVID uh, deaths increase again. And she said, quote, hospitals, communities, states, they have to make their own decisions. That's something we get in. That's not something we get involved in. So how different is that from Trump who said crazy things like COVID will just disappear like magic? Uh, when Biden came into office as the second year of the pandemic began, he promoted the funding of COVID research and long COVID research. Uh, but he's caved in the Republican resistance to funding anything COVID-related. Um, but it's not just the Republicans who are resisting it. Can you think of one Democrat who's been a champion for COVID protections in the last year? Uh, the Biden administration heavily promoted vaccines in the spring of 2021 as he came into office. Uh, but when was the last time you saw a public service message from the federal government urging you to update your vaccination? It's not there. Uh, and, and then what could the Biden administration have done or what should we be advocating? Uh, we could be advocating normalizing, staying at home when sick, and to support that mandated sick pay so workers aren't forced to choosing between losing pay or even their jobs if they take off because they're sick with COVID or any other infectious disease. Uh, we should be promoting wearing a mask when sick or in congested areas. Uh, we should be providing government support for regular vaccination updates. You know, they were free, the government paid for it. Now it's through your insurance, uh, which can be costly. Uh, we should be investing in HEPA air filtration in schools and other places, public places. Uh, 
make COVID testing more easily available, uh, be conducting contact tracing and notification of exposure. I'm in New York. We had a program. It was on my phone. They just discarded that. Like, there's no COVID out there anymore. We could require airlines who are really encouraging people to fly sick uh, to waive the cancellation and change fees in cases where uh, people get COVID and they need to change their flights. Uh, so, you know, make it easier rather than people saying, oh, I already paid for it. I'm sick, but I'm going to go anyway. Uh, and as I said, we should have restored free government paid for vaccines. Um, and, you know, it comes out of pocket. 10% of the population is still uninsured at any one point, about 35 million people. Of course, which the other thing that the Greens are fighting for is universal health care through hopefully not just national health insurance, what they call Medicare for all, but a community controlled national health service. It just socializes and democratizes the whole healthcare system. So it's accountable and fully funded for all medically necessary services. Um, you know, so we got a healthcare crisis and, you know, the Greens need to advocate this because the Democrats sure are. And really the Democrats are no better than the Republicans are now on COVID. They've said nothing this week and I haven't been able to find anything uh, as 2000 people died from COVID. So this COVID mitigation, mitigation program, it's a natural issue for Dr. Jill Stein, and I hope she speaks out about it. And uh, we're going to link to a, 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 in the chat to the People's CDC, uh, Center for Disease Prevention, uh, CDC, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, I guess. Anyway, it's called the People's CDC. And it's uh, progressive scientists and healthcare providers who've been trying to uh, get the word out, uh, you know, on a progressive science-based response to COVID, which is still here. And uh, so I hope you all are, are taking precautions, updating your vaccines, and uh, you can avoid COVID or another infection and long COVID because that's uh, it's a serious problem. So anyway, I'll, I'll stop there and let's look at your questions and comments. Vicki Corden, in Florida, the general surgeon is saying COVID vaccines cause cancer. Just lies and propaganda from Republicans. Yeah, there's a, there's a bad tendency in American politics to buy conspiracy uh, fantasies. And, you know, it's really strong on the right. Uh, and it's, but also it's, it's on the left as well. And I think part of the reason is we don't have a socialist left with a class analysis of the power structure and the sources of our social problems. So people fall easy prey to conspiracies uh, that blame a cabal of, you know, evil people uh, without a lot of evidence, but it's just the kind of explanation that people fall for. Uh, you know, and saying vaccines cause cancer, you know, there's probably somebody on the web saying that. And uh, the Surgeon General, I'm trying to remember, they also said something else really dumb about COVID uh, maybe last year. I just can't remember it. But, um, you know, that's DeSantis Surgeon General, who seems like a, a quack doctor.
Amy L. Sachs, bad weather here. Yeah, I think it, much of the country. Probably not many protesters out, but there have been earlier and probably will be again. I'm not sure where here is. When I looked at the Washington demonstration, people were bundled up, but I didn't see the snow swirling, didn't see the wind being particularly strong. So hopefully that didn't deter people. Uh, the live stream did some scanning of the crowd, but only you know pretty close to the stage. So I didn't get a sense of how big it was. Um, but I do know the New York Times reported that it was happening this morning. So that in itself, you know, the administration and Congress knows uh, because the new, it's part of the news, which is good. They need pressure from the people. <clears throat> Amy L. Sachs, I see plenty of socialist analysis online, but once everyone's trotted out their knowledge, they can still think of nothing better to do than ladle out poor Biden. Yeah, well, that's, you know, a big controversy on the socialist left, the self-consciously socialist left. And it's been a problem since the 1930s when the Communist Party, which had become the biggest left party, surpassing the socialists, called for a, a united front with the progressive capitalists. And that meant Franklin Roosevelt. And they really have stayed with that position to this day. Uh, but it influenced the broader left, what we might, might just call the progressive left, so that most people default to the Democrats, not that they love them, but they're certainly better than the Republicans. And the idea that to build a left with its own identity and distinctive alternative analysis and program requires an independent left party uh, is something that is not a basic principle among American socialists, although for Marx and Engels uh, and others in the you know 19th century, it was self-evident that we had to have an independent working class party. Uh, and they really drew that lesson from the revolutions in 1848, which were pro-democracy revolutions, mainly against the landed elites of Europe. And they were in coalition with the rising uh, bourgeois or capitalists or business class who wanted the franchise as well. Um, but when push came to shove, those they called the middle class, you know, now they're the upper class, but the business classes and the professional classes, they sold out the working classes because these those regimes gave some concessions both on economic reform and on uh, democratic rights to the business and professional classes, but not to the working class which over the rest of the 19th century had to fight for the franchise. And by the end of the 19th century and much of Europe, they got it. Um, so that was the lesson of 1848 that Marx and Engels drew and, you know, socialists across the board, whether they were Marxists or not, you know, had the same conclusion. But in this country, especially since the 1930s, um, you know, socialists, DSA is, a, you know, the biggest socialist group and, you know, they are, uh, committed, you know, at least as a national organization by their policies to supporting uh, socialists or just progressives inside the Democratic Party. And they give lip service, you know, we need to build an independent working class party in the long run, but, you know, that's not what they do in practice. And so that's been a huge problem on the American left 
among American socialists for a century now. And it's, you know, one of the reasons I have that ebook, you know, it started out as an article, The Need for an Independent Left Party. Um, and it, you know, it, you know, independent left politics, independent politics by the left in support of, you know, the working class and oppressed uh, was the first principle of socialist politics. And since the 1930s, American socialists have forgotten that. Part of that is due to the fact that we have a you know winner-take-all uh, single-member district electoral system, which creates the spoiler problem. Um, but there are ways of getting around that: ranked choice voting, proportional representation, or just in you know out organizing the two major parties, particularly in local districts. We we've shown we can do that. The Greens have 140 people in office right now, um, so it's it's not it shouldn't be a barrier. The the, the electoral system should not be an excuse for not having an independent party. And, and what's happened since the 1930s is that the socialist left, which during you know the era of Eugene Debs, the socialist party going into the 30s was a live option. It was part of the national debate. And the socialists were able to put issues on the agenda like you know pensions for seniors, social security, uh, national health insurance, that's still a debate. Um, protections for, against child labor and uh, unemployment insurance, all those kind of things. The socialists put that on the agenda. And some of them we achieved in the 1930s and some more in the 1960s, at least partially. Um, so we don't have that independent socialist left that's part of the national debate. Um, you know, at best you get reference to Bernie Sanders and the squad being socialists. But what that means in terms of policy and how distinct it is from the Democrats is not part of the debate in the mass media. And unfortunately, those so-called socialists in the Democratic Party don't do much to distinguish themselves because what are they saying? I mean, the squad and Bernie, they all endorsed Biden without making any demands a year ago. So, you know, they, they, are, they are liberal, progressive Democrats, but they're nominally socialists, but they aren't really doing what socialists should do, and that is present a systemic alternative to the capitalist system that's such a problem for us. So, yeah, I think they can do nothing better than ladle out support for Biden. You know, that's the problem. There's not a, a principle of independent politics on the socialist left, and there should be. Zimani, hi. Do we know how many different offices are open to green candidates so far nationwide based on the number of states where greens have ballot access? An actual number could be a galvanizing selling point. Uh, they're keeping that. Mike Feinstein keeps a uh, an electoral, green electoral database, and he's adding names. But, you know, the criteria he uses is when they get ballot status, he adds them to the uh, database. So a lot of these uh, formal nominations where Greens do have ballot status are going to happen in the spring or even the summer. Um, and some have already happened. Um, and then in other states where we've got a petition to get on the ballot, um, you know, it, it varies from state to state. I mean, the Jill Stein campaign's going to try to do it in every state. Uh, in some cases, uh, statewide candidates may be, may be able to slate with her on petitions, um, but candidates running for 
down ballot seats are going to have to do their own petitions in most states. And those deadlines uh, start coming in the late spring and, and then very rapidly in July and August. So what I'm saying is that number will be much bigger than what we can document now. And uh, so it is a number we should be promoting, particularly because one of the arguments against this is, you know, why do the Greens always run for president? Why don't they run for lower offices? And we do. Um, but it doesn't get the uh, publicity, even from the Green Party, that it should. And so I think you're making a good point. Uh, we need to, you know, get our candidates recognized and then, you know, let people in the media who cover politics know that we're running a lot of candidates at the local and state and national, at congressional level, House level. Well, Senate level, too. There's some Senate candidates as well as a candidate for president. Um, and I think it should be in the framework that, you know, our longer term strategy is to build a base of local elected officials, state elected officials and build from the bottom up. And uh, somebody, I think, in the chat was saying how many different offices are open. You know, every office, a lot of these in a lot of states are nonpartisan offices. So being a green on the ballot, is, is you don't get the spoiler effect. Um, Z-Money, I'm not talking about how many candidates. I'm talking about how many offices. It's a huge difference between greens and other third parties. Greens need to sell their scale. People don't understand the concept of national corporate free ballot line that greens have already provided. Um, okay, offices. You know, I'm, I'm not sure how many are open this year. There are about 500,000 elected offices in this country. The overwhelming majority of them are local. You know, I mean, we got some towns up here in, in New York that still elect town, what do they call them? Fence watcher. You know, those, that's a rural position, you know, so that farmers aren't, you know, they're, they're keeping their fences up and they're not, you know, building them on someone else's land. Um, you know, there are lots of offices like that, you know, little, uh, you know, commissions and boards that oversee different uh, functions of municipalities, as well as, you know, the, the legislative bodies of these municipalities and the executive uh, position, uh, which in some cases are taken out of the legislature. You know, the legislative body will elect one of their own members to be the, the mayor or chief executive. Uh, in other cases, it's elected independent. I mean, there's so many offices. So it's not a problem of finding offices. Um, and I think, you know, Green should should spend a lot more time looking at those offices and seeing which ones uh, they have people that would be good fits for and getting them elected. And yeah, corporate free, that's, you know, we, we don't take money from business interests uh, that are spending their money on elections because they expect a return. Uh, this is hugely popular across political divides. The public is clamoring to know which candidates aren't bought. Yeah, I think you're right about that, Zimani. Um, it's something, you know, the Greens can tout. And if we had a lot more candidates, it would make our case a lot stronger. <clears throat> With the coming spring bringing an increase of organizing and ballot access activity, what should Greens be doing right now in the winter to prepare for spring organizing? Well, again, it's going to vary a lot from state to state. There are a lot of states where, you, in fact, the majority of states, the petitions can begin now. There are only some states that 
have a start date that is, you know, some of them are two years before the election. Some of them have no start date. So these petitions can be started now. <coughs> and Greens are doing it. I know they're doing it in Missouri. They've got enough signatures in South Dakota, but they're getting more because the deadline is later on. Um, now, it's easier to petition in, I don't know, Alabama at this time of year than North Dakota, where it's, you know, very can be very cold. Um, so, again, that's why I'm saying you have to strategize each state differently. Uh, but in most cases, uh, the petitioning can begin now. If it's, you know, the weather's too bad to get out there and, and try to get people to sign uh, signatures, you can, you know, get people signed up to do petitioning, to make pledges of how many signatures they'll get. Um, so that's one thing. I think another is, you know, we can be speaking out on the issues, you know, public forums, letters to the editor, news releases. Uh, we can do a lot more, I think, in the local at state level to cultivate uh, journalists who cover politics and be an interesting story for them. I mean, one of the things journalists, you know, want is good stories. And Greens, you know, uh, can provide, you know, stories with human interest and color. Uh, we can raise issues that are being ignored, like the COVID issue I just talked about, um, the healthcare crisis, uh, this idea that's becoming more popular among uh, single-payer advocates is like Medicare for all. Is what, What's the, the title of that article that appeared a couple years ago? Medicare for all is not enough. That came from leaders and physicians for a national health program. Now they're calling for a national health service, like I was campaigning on in 2020. Um, so, you know, we, we can always be talking to the people directly and through the media, um, even if the weather's not good. Um, and then I think, you know, we need to be just strengthening our local organizations. You know, if we're not meeting regularly, get that set up. Uh, if we don't have a good database and means of communicating electronically with our members and supporters, you know, strengthen that. Um, we can always use money, you know, some creative fundraising events, uh, setting up, you know, being a dues paid organization and not just a, a so, excuse me, association where people can, uh, you know, participate in voting without contributing anything financially. I mean, I think we have too many free riders who are casual. If they're not willing to put in a little bit of money, according to their ability to pay, to support the Green Party, are they really serious? And should they be voting members? I think not. I think, you know, there should be some obligation to support the party financially as well as agree with its principles. Um, and beyond that, to be, you know, a consistent participant. You know, some locals say, you know, if you miss, you know, meetings for three months, you 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 got to wait two months coming to meetings before you can vote again. I think that's a good rule because what we want are a serious core of people who are committed, but are, you know, contributing financially, showing up regularly, uh, following the discussion. You know, if people flit in and out, uh, they're missing, you know, the, as the discussion within the local organization develops. And, uh, you know, they need to be brought up to speed. And it's a waste of everybody's time to rehash stuff that was already discussed. So that's another thing, you know, when people are coming in for the first time or coming back, you need orientation. I mean, there's so much we can do to strengthen our organizations, and that can be done in the wintertime when the weather's not good. Um, but as the main point is, in most states, you can start petitioning now. In one state that I know that we need 
petitions is New York. We only got 42 days to get 45,000 signatures. That begins in April. And unfortunately, the Green Party in New York has not had any discussion about how we're going to organize that. Just some talk about we need we need to get organized. But it's, you know, what is it now? We got middle of February to middle of March to middle of April. We got three months to get organized for a very difficult petition. So, you know, we need to get going in New York. Vicki Cord, <clears throat> here in Florida, a Republican senator is opposing Bill 1780. If anyone says that a public figure is homophobic, transphobic, sexist, etc., one could be sued for $35,000 by the public official. Uh, that sounds like, you know, just sounds like Russia. You know, if you criticize Putin or criticize uh, the war, you know, you're a, uh, what do they call it? They say you you can you can be uh, arrested and, and sent to prison for undermining the armed forces or you know disrespecting the armed forces. I forget exactly how they phrase it. You know that's that's anti free speech, anti First Amendment, anti American. I mean, but you know that's we have laws like that. You know these laws against supporting BDS against Israel. You know something like thirty five states have some kind of a sanction against, you know, even advocating that. Uh, so it's a problem. And, you know, if anything, best thing about the United States is its, you know, freedoms, its First Amendment freedoms in particular. But we got public officials that are willing to dispense with them. And, uh, yeah, I would, I would expect that from a Republican in Florida. A. Jones, 35. Some leftists would just sooner would sooner just tweet their displeasure than actually put in some work. Yeah, I, I, I'm not against tweeting or what do you say, Xing now? You know, going online, that's part of it, but it's it's not sufficient. And you know, we got to get off the screens and onto the streets. And uh, you know, that's you know, tweeting is not a substitute for other kinds of political activity that have a much more uh, impact on people. You know, face-to-face -face encounters, uh, other forums than Twitter, which is kind of a crapshoot. Uh, you know, if you go viral, you reach a lot of people, but there's such short, you know, uh, statements. You know, Ralph Nader calls them sound barks instead of sound bites because it's just just woofing. It's you really can't present much information or analysis. So, yeah, I, I agree with you there. We, we need to get off the screens and onto the streets more. Zimani, you mentioned legislation Greens will introduce in New York State Congress to improve ballot access policies and enable Greens to get on the New York State ballot. What's the status of that? Uh, we still don't have a sponsor in the uh, New York State Legislature. Um, we're working on that, and uh, I hope soon we do. Um, unfortunately, it probably won't affect this year. But, you know, the next step is to get it on the legislative, in the hopper, so then we can build support for it and a coalition behind it. And uh, if we can't get it this year, maybe next year. But that's where we're at.
Scout Trooper 164, I read somewhere that Donald Trump won't have the right to make a closing statement for his fraud case. Any thoughts about that? Uh, well, he wanted to make a closing statement. The judge put conditions on it and said you got to speak to the case and not make a campaign speech. You can't insult the judge or the court staff, things like that. It's very unusual for uh, a defendant in this kind of uh, case to make a closing statement. That's what their lawyers are for. Uh, so Trump made that request. The judge set those conditions and Trump's lawyer said, okay, forget it. And then I think it was Friday, yesterday, or maybe Thursday, uh, Trump showed up in court and the lawyer said, well, he wants to speak after all. And the judge said, okay, according to my conditions. And Donald Trump and started blathering about everything. And the judge, you know, uh, reprimanded the lawyers. He said, control your client. He's going outside the bounds. But Trump, you know, made his campaign speech. And that was that. And I don't think the judge has already ruled he committed fraud. The question now is how much money has he got to disgorge uh, for defrauding banks? And uh, I don't think he helped himself with the judge by being such an ass. But that's Donald Trump. It was more about, you know, his standing in the public. He, he just saw this as a platform. So those are my thoughts about that. He, he asked for it. Uh, he didn't accept the conditions. Then he asked at the last minute and broke the conditions and just made his case worse for himself. SCR, according to her Instagram Live, how does Jill truly plan to stop Project 2025 any differently than Biden? How many more conservative platforms, News Nation, do she and Cornell West Hannity need to go on before progressive Greens get a clue that she's compromised? Um, compromised with a Q. I, I don't know quite what you mean with the, I, you're not saying she's part of QAnon, I guess, or maybe you are. Um, so the question is, uh, how does she plan to stop, you know, this right-wing uh, project 2025, which is basically the Trump agenda that the Heritage Foundation has been drafting? Um, and, you know, is News Nation a conservative platform? I, I don't know for sure. I've, I've seen that she's been on there. Cornell West went on Hannity. He'll go on anybody. Um I, you know, I'll just say what, you know, my position is. I wouldn't go on some of these platforms because I wouldn't give my legitimacy to them. You know, somebody like Tucker Carlson. I wouldn't go on his stuff. Hannity, same thing. Um, so, uh, but, but then the question becomes, how do you reach people? Well, the audiences of these conservative platforms are not our audiences. Uh, very few people watch them. Fox you know, is somewhat different because it's on all the cable and it's, you know, playing in Dunkin' Donuts here everywhere. And uh, you might reach a few more people, but it's really not a, a good forum anyway. Um, I think, you know, one thing that the campaign should do is, and this is something we can be doing now, is uh, getting out to people, you know, canvassing the public by phone and by doorsteps and, you know, talking about, you know, the green a program 
and why people should support it. Um, so that's one way to reach people. But you do want to get into the mass media. The question is how. It's very difficult. Cornell West is doing a better job because he's a performer. He's, you know, he's got this shtick and, you know, the media likes it. It's good TV. Um, it's colorful. And the print journalists, you know, also for the same reason are giving him more coverage. Uh, you know, Jill is not so much of a performer. I mean, I think she, you know, speaks well, you know, on her own behalf. Uh, but it's just not the same kind of uh, presentation that gets clicks and eyeballs, which is what, you know, the, the for-profit media is looking for. So it's a tough question. I think in the long run for the Greens, it's we got to be in communities and people looking for us for, you know, what should people be thinking about this or that social problem? And then, you know, we can bring our candidates to the people that way. That's that's a way of getting around the mass media, which is, you know, corporate controlled and not generally sympathetic to our point of view. Um, but, you know, we can be, as I was saying earlier, with local media at the national level, be creative to get stories, um, you know, make statements that grab attention. Um, and I think Jill will have a stronger uh, platform as she gets more ballot lines because she's going to get them in. Cornell West and even Robert Kennedy are going to have a much harder time. Um, and being on the ballot means having an impact in November, which means the media has got to, you know, pay attention to her. And then the trick is to have them talk to her so she can speak for herself rather than just about her. So, you know, that's a real challenge for a media team, and I hope they're up to it. But, you know, and, and even they should be cultivating relationships with national political journalists who are, uh, you know, uh, honest and, and you know, fairly objective, who, you know, let her speak her own words through their articles and, you know, broadcasts. Amy L. Sachs, if you can explain the hate radio crowd that they'll get nothing of substance until they let go of their hate. Sure, Ed Zimani. Um, the hate radio crowd, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm not sure what you're referring to there unless it's conservative talk radio, um, which is, you know, on these Christian channels, which are ubiquitous in the Fox channels, uh, in the you know, I, I don't even listen to the radio that much anymore. I'm trying to think who's out there. Clear Channels was a very conservative outlet, had a lot of the syndicated programs from the right. Um, how do you explain to that audience to get nothing of substance until they let go of their hate? I think you got you to gotta find them outside of the hate radio context on the streets. You know, most of the... You know, Ralph Nader often says, you know, we should be thinking of issues that appeal to both the left and the right. And it's not about getting together in coalitions with right wing leaders like that Rage Against the Machine demo last year. They're planning another one this year with, you know, a bunch of right wingers and opportunists who call themselves left but are really just conspiracy nuts. Um, that's not the format. You don't want to, you know, give platforms to, you know, people who are not just right wing, but racist, sexist, uh, and and just, uh, well, they're part of the, the hate crowd. 
um, you want to reach those rank and file conservatives, uh, you know, and talk about issues and solutions we offer. And those people are, you know, maybe misinformed by right wing talk radio, uh, but they're not uh, people looking to be bad or, or you know, to uh, victimize others. They they just think that these right wingers are offering answers to why they have problems like it's the immigrants. And so the way to get to those people is, you know, on the street uh, or in, you know, public forums where, you know, all sides can speak. They show up at city city hall hearings uh, like we do. And that's an opportunity to, you know, state your case. And, you know, in my experience, a lot of conservatives come up to me after I speak and, you know, tell me what they like, maybe what they didn't like, but they're they're more human in that context than they are, you know, absorbing this uh, hate radio and, you know, hate TV and hate Twitter. I mean, that's uh, not a format where you can have a real dialogue, whereas, you know, in more local face-to-face context, you can. And I think, you know, some people will begin to see that, you know, particularly when the Greens are a presence in communities and they're being constructive and consistent and serious, and they're not part of the local elite that's often corrupt, run by the real estate. Real estate tends to run local politics. And people on the right see the, you know, the scandals and the corruption as well. If we have that kind of presence, then some of these people that are conservatives, you know, will at least get their respect, sometimes their votes, and sometimes, you know, a change of heart from their political point of view. Zimani, I think a large number of people in the conservative rank and file aren't ideological. They're frustrated and angry and attracted to a voice that expresses that anger. Lots of people are open-minded. Yeah, that's better said than what I just said. That's what I was trying to say. And we can engage those people in in contexts where it's uh, face-to-face. via email, comments on the Taiwanese elections. Uh, Yeah, this is getting a lot of international attention. There's the old uh, nationalists that uh, Mao defeated and uh, retreated to Taiwan, and they actually want more dialogue and and are more interested in unity with mainland China. Uh, Then the opposition, the Democratic Progressive Party, uh, which wants uh, sovereignty if not formal independence, although some in that party do want formal independence. So a lot of people read into the elections how that impacts, you know, the geopolitical situation between the Chinese, the Taiwanese, and, you know, the Americans and the other party powers in the region, you know, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, Australia, New Zealand. Um, But from what I'm hearing and reading about, you know, the real issues in that election are uh, the domestic economy. Um, so I think that's how the election will turn. And I think whichever side wins, uh, they both really want the status quo, which is nominally, uh, they're a, it's a one China with uh, Taiwan as a, a, you know, a province, um, but without changing the status quo, that it's a democracy not under the control of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and, you know, as long as Taiwan doesn't provoke China, I don't think China is going to 
take military action. If they did, that would be terrible, and it would be, you know, rank aggression. I mean, the one thing the Taiwanese did is the the nationalists who retreated after losing the Mao set up a dictatorship, and that went on from you know the late forties until really 1996 when they had you know they they had a pro democracy movement and they they won democracy and they've had free and fair elections since 1996. The Taiwanese are very proud of that. So if you look at another thing I saw was polls. Um, how do people in Taiwan identify? Taiwanese or Japanese? 70% say they're Taiwanese, which is an indication of how strong, you know, uh, the attachment to, you know, Taiwanese sovereignty is. Um, so I think the elections won't change much, whichever side wins. Uh, it's pretty much going to be the status quo. And whoever does get elected is, you know, got a, a diplomatic tightrope to walk between uh, U.S., you know, support for Taiwan in terms of trade or, or weapons and China, which, you know, really would like to take control of Taiwan. Uh, but probably, or I don't think, are willing to, you know, start a war over it. I think they, they're more likely to, you know, try to squeeze Taiwan through trade and uh, that kind of thing until they can, you know, get Taiwan to s succumb to their uh, their dictates. But I don't think Taiwan will. So I think this is a long-term tension that needs to be managed. And I don't think the elections are going to change that much. Okay, the pro-sovereignty candidate won. That would be the Democratic Progressive Party that was the incumbent party. So uh, today's Saturday. I thought the election went over the whole weekend, but I know it started at least yesterday. In any case, okay, so, you know, I think the status quo prevails. And I think uh, that party doesn't want to provoke China. So, you know, I think, I don't think there's any crisis about to happen in, in, in Taiwan. It's the last thing we need. We got enough going on in the world. Okay, it's uh, four o'clock. Oh, via email, response to the U.S. and U.K. bombing Yemen. Well, the U.S., you know, Biden should have gone to Congress. Uh, that's, you know, the Constitution and the War Powers Act. Uh, he doesn't have free reign to engage in this kind of offensive uh, action. I think Congress would have given him permission. I mean, what the Houthis are doing to international trade is, you know, costing a lot of countries, a lot of shipping companies, a lot. Um, it's supposed to be uh, to harm Israel uh, while the war in Gaza goes on. But uh, it's not, you know, not most of these Houthi missiles don't reach targets. And then, like yesterday, I guess it was, they they targeted missiles at a Russian oil tanker. Uh, two problems with that is they consider Russia an ally. And two, uh, sinking an oil tanker or, you know, having it leak oil in the Red Sea 
or wherever it was in the Straits uh, is an environmental disaster. So, you know, what the Houthis are doing is, is not something to be supported. Now, whether, uh, you know, missile strikes on Houthi military assets uh, is going to work to deter them or to degrade their ability to uh, disrupt shipping, um, you know, I, I don't have a sense of, you know, what capacity they have, how much the bombings degraded them. And I do think what it won't convince them to, uh, you know, stop. They will, whatever capacity they have, they'll continue. Um, and it, you know, mobilized support for the Houthis in Sana. There was a massive demonstration. I saw pictures of it uh, against those bombings. So, um, you know, that's my response. I think should have gone to Congress. If Congress, I think Congress would have said yes. But then there's a question is, this is the most effective thing that can be done uh, to stop the bombing. What would be, the, you know, what, what the Houthis have said is if Israel stops its attack on Gaza, they'll stop their attack on shipping in the Red Sea. If the U.S. put pressure on Israel, you know, to stop the war, um, then the Houthis would say, okay, you know, they'd stop disrupting uh, traffic. So there's that angle to it too. And I think, unfortunately, you know, U.S. policy is not, to stop the Israelis. It's try to like temper the the damage to civilians and they're not having no effect on that. Netanyahu, like I was saying at the beginning, is just playing Biden for a fool. Because, you know, the Israelis listen and then they go ahead and do what they want anyway because the U.S. has always, well, for decades now, given the Israelis unconditional military and diplomatic support for whatever, for whatever the hell they do. And this quiet talk behind the scenes from Blinken and Biden it doesn't seem to be having an impact. So maybe a small impact. Maybe some of those hostages got exchanged with the help of U.S. Uh, diplomacy and, you know, the token humanitarian aid. You know, that might not even have gone in. But, you know, in the big picture, that's not much. The U.S. has got to change its policy. Okay, well, our hour is up for this week. We'll be back next week. Um, I hope people keep speaking out about Gaza. Um, and, you know, as it came up here, there's a lot of green organizing to do as we, you know, get ready for the ballot petitioning and, you know, really trying to put the Green Party into the discussion this year. Um, so I hope people are working on that. And uh, we'll be back here next week, same time. And have a good week, everybody. We got